This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Joanna Silver is a gardener, writer, and editor, formerly the garden editor at Sunset Magazine. She is a regular contributor to Martha Stewart Living, Better Homes and Gardens, and the San Francisco Chronicle. The author of The Bold Dry Garden on the Garden and Legacy of famed California plantswoman Ruth Bancroft, this week Joanna joins us to talk about her newest book, Growing Weed in the Garden, a no-fuss seed-to-stash guide to outdoor cannabis cultivation, out now from Abrams Press. Cannabis in California has been legal for medical use since 1996, and in November of 2016, California voters approved the Adult Use of Marijuana Act to legalize the recreational use of cannabis. The use, sale, and possession of cannabis over a certain level of THC remains illegal under federal U.S. law. That said, according to a recent report on NPR, 33 U.S. states currently allow for some form of sale and consumption of marijuana, and of those, more than 20 states have designated the cannabis industry as essential during the coronavirus outbreak. From her shelter in place with her young family in Berkeley, California, Joanna joins us today to shine a brighter light on the often confusing growing weed as gardeners. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you. So nice to be here. Back with you. The last time we spoke, we were speaking primarily about your first book, The Bold Dry Garden. And this new book is something of a uh, an adventurous kind of tangent or like offshoot from your original garden writing work. I want to start, though, with your current relationship to plants and the garden world, both personal and professional, Joanna. What do you do every day? Tell listeners more about who you are and what you're up to. It is so nice to be talking to you again, even just anticipating the conversation that I would be having with you got me just like thinking about life. And anyway, thank you. Just thank you for having me and thank you for making all the room to talk to people about about exactly this, their relationship to plants. Um, I am home now as, you know, all non-essential workers are, and I am doing the very essential work of raising my son who turns three in July and um, in a non-pandemic situation spends um, most of his day in a nanny share. Um, So we garden some Um, but it was more like gardening light. And now that we're home together, I am gardening heavy and doing it with him. I felt I was already going to have a vegetable garden this year. I was already scaling back on the weed. I'm only really growing it this year to continue to write about it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a, it's a really fun plant to grow, et cetera, et cetera. But I really have this urge to grow fruits and vegetables with my son. Um, and so even though that was already going to happen, I dug up, um, two, maybe like eight by eight feet by 30 inch beds right in the middle of our meadowy grass. 
um, to, with him to create more space. So as I talk to you, he's asleep, there's dirt all over my hands and, um, I'm feeling really, really connected to the hard, honest labor of garden creation. And it feels so good. So good. And, you know, you've, you touched on a couple of things already right there. One being the fact that many of us are home as quote unquote non-essential. And yet in this moment, so many people have turned back to activities and connections that are so essential, like our own attachment and connection to how we survive, how we make our, how we make our lives, not just our livings. And that is in raising our families and cultivating our pieces of land. So, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have us go back just a little bit before we dig into the structure of the book and, and some of these levels on which you got intrigued. Many listeners will remember the bold dry garden, but just for those who don't, give us a little background on you. Where where were the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a person who would want to be a person that wrote about gardens and gardened with her son as a matter of both principle and practicality? So I got my start farming in college after traveling, so really interested in food and food security. I had a very meandering path and ended up in the editorial test garden at Sunset Magazine back in the Menlo Park days through to the Oakland and um, new test garden in Sonoma County days and went from outdoors at the magazine to indoors writing and editing. And Timber Press reached out to me looking for a Bay Area writer to write this book idea that they had about um, Ruth Bancroft's uh, garden, cactus and dry garden in, in Walnut Creek, California. And I pitched myself because I was young and ambitious. And so I wrote um, a book about Ruth's life and Ruth's garden. She just passed away actually also 20 early 2018, late 2017, at the age of 109. Um, and so just a couple of years before that, I wrote this book about her life and her garden. I think the fun, one of the fun things for me as a gardener and garden communicator, journalist person, is seeing so many come back to gardening and recognize it as this essential thing that it is and that you and I and other, you know, kind of diehard gardeners have has always known and we've been advocating for. Now, you also indicated in this first question this sort of interesting, uh, almost conflicted feeling about growing weed. And I think it's a perfect segue into the conversation for us on this um, on this program. People have been telling me that I should do an episode on weed for the longest time because, as you note in your introduction to the book, it's one of the largest crops in California. And many, many people are interested in it. And it has this deep, historical, ritualistic, medicinal, legitimate, like, weight and gravitas to it, but that is so blurred by the the other baggage that comes with it that I have stayed away from it until now because I was so compelled by your book and the way that you handled 
that year, uh, and maybe it was a little bit more, of researching, documenting, and writing about this project you took on as a as an assignment, not necessarily a personal passion, but an assignment. And uh, so I really kind of want to get into that. The um, I just want to say, by the way, that your documentation of life at home with your uh, two, almost three-year-old garden intern, as you call him on Instagram, has been <laughs> a total pleasure to watch in its um, true sort of honesty, raw, dirty-fingered honesty. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a, it's been a massive um, creative outlet for me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... What, tell us about this book. Why this book? How did it happen? What made you decide to take on writing a book about growing weed? In, in 2017, I had a baby and I was headed back to work, um, you know, six-ish months later, back to Sunset Magazine, garden editor, where I thought I'd have the job for the rest of my life. Kathy Brenzel before me held the position for 40 years. And I was all set to go back. It was the week before maternity leave was over. And the place was bought by private equity and I lost my job. Um, I felt desperate to keep writing and working and reached out to everyone I've ever written for asking for assignments, um, just to keep going to feel some forward momentum and a former editor in chief of the magazine, Kitty Morgan, um, worked at the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle. And I reached out to her and told her I wanted to write for her. You know, the Chronicle does garden design, edible gardening, whatever. And mm -hmm. she said, you have a new baby. I bet you don't have time to do lunch. Um, but I maybe called her bluff and I was like, I totally have time to do lunch and met her for lunch. And she, um, it was right before recreational use went legal and including recreational growing in California. And she was like, I have this whole other idea for you. I want you to grow weed in your backyard and document it as a gardener. <laughs> um, I think at that time, everyone, like it was coming, but it still felt even more taboo than it does now. We were all sort of figuring out how to talk about how we felt about cannabis being something that we can talk about. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I told her I didn't know where to get seeds. And she said emphatically, that's your opening line. <laughs> and it was supposed to be for this part, this separate website run by the Chronicle called Green State, um, which has since been folded into the magazine or into the newspaper. And it actually got, got lost its funding for a while, but Kitty was so dedicated and to me that they ran this, the series in the food and wine section on Sundays. And I worked through this 10 part series for them on growing weed in my backyard as a gardener, starting from knowing nothing to having a big crash course in the plant. Yeah. Everything about the, I mean, and needing to forge new contacts. I had, I was starting from zero other than my years of experience being a garden writer um, and a gardener, you know, for sunset. Yeah. Yeah. And along the way you got kind of into it. Not, not in a, like I'm a stoner and I'm going to start a new 
strain cultivar jennifer cultivar yeah exactly we're we're going to get into that nomenclature uh topic because i i was i loved that um there was this moment where you all of a sudden went okay this is this is really interesting and really cool yeah and that was pretty quickly um Mm -hmm. because i first you know my i went home i mean i went home i was my if you could find my google searches from the time that they'd probably they were pathetically (laughs) novice and you know i quickly learned that the plant is dioecious so it has you know male and female plants and that's pretty rare in the plant world especially in the edible world um you know like kiwis are dioecious right spinach is dioecious but who cares because we don't really grow it to flower um and so that kind of caught my eye and that you have to grow the plants and do something called sex the plants and in order to remove the males i mean that was all just sort of like fascinating from a fascinating from a nerdy gardener standpoint Mm -hmm. um so i was interested horticulturally pretty quickly and and then yeah i I did get into it on so many different levels. The book, so the book happened because I wasn't finding the information I needed, which was non-stoner garden cultivation outdoors. And it's just, it's not to be found. And so I decided to pitch a book about it and that's how the book started. But yeah, I got interested. I got interested in so many levels. I am still very much a garden writer. I don't want to write outside of the world of gardens, but maybe like you, I care more about people's stories. And so I think when I, you know, went up to Humboldt and started meeting people um, whose whole life stories revolved around this plant, you know, I got interested in telling those stories. Um, I got interested in how open-armed, I was being accepted into the cannabis community. I sort of thought they'd all be like, yeah, yeah, recreational's here. You're a day late and a dollar short. And instead, they were all so happy to have someone more mainstream looking to normalize it. Um, And ultimately, I think bringing a gardener's sensibility to a plant that has sort of been gardened outside of that sphere, you know, by like stoners in closets or in the woods. Um, So I got interested on, on many levels. It was, it was sort of like a dream time to get canned from my dream job. (laughs) As you took this project on, did you find that many of your gardening skills and your garden writing skills were ready to go on this new project? Because it, as you already indicated, it is this plant that is really visible and invisible at the same time. And so bringing it into the fold of saying, it's a plant, we can garden it, we can grow it, we can care for it and harvest it just like we do our carrots and peppers. So I think, yes. Okay. So I think it, I, I got into it not feeling confident and wondering how utterly complicated it would be. And indeed I had, um, 
I think the thing with weed is that you have to be really careful where you get your advice from because it has been grown in all these strange locations for so long. And there are these weird cultivation practices. And basically where it's not been grown is in the garden by gardeners. So you're getting your advice from all these, you know, cannabis loving people who maybe only grow weed and are otherwise connected. So, you know, even when I started, I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing this outdoors, you know, no equipment, no nothing. And, you know, some of the first people I talked to were like, well, maybe you can do that, but you definitely need to start the seeds indoors with lights. And I'm like, eh, I don't really, like, I've never started my tomatoes with lights. Like, I think, I think it's going to be fine. Um, and so I think it was discovery all along the way that it is indeed just a plant. And especially um, around the time of, like, when it starts flowering and there's all of this craziness in cannabis cultivation, you know, flipping it, flipping the plant from vegging to flowering and you know, in an indoor, quote, garden, you're controlling, you know, the plant's growth with light um, and changing the light. And outdoors, you don't do any of that. Summer does that for you. So this idea that one day the plant is in, is in quote, vegging and one day it's in flowering is just not, is just different. It's just not relevant. You know, it's, I, in the book, I liken it to a determinate tomato. It grows and then it flowers and you're not like obsessed with the day that the flowers form. So, you know, it like took time and growing it myself to, I think, really understand that it's just a plant. It's just a plant. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Gardener, mother, and writer Joanna Silver joins us today to share more about her newest book, Growing Weed in the Garden. That's right, that weed. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Ah, In all of this time of COVID-19, of social distancing and various levels of isolation, I have to tell you that you all have been my constant companions. In my mind, in my ears, in my inbox, on social media. This episode is the first one that I recorded from home. You can hear maybe that I sound a little bit more boxed than usual. And Um, All I can say is new skills. I'm learning new skills, and this is one of the silver linings of this time. But you, you, of whom there are more than 32,000 who tune into the Cultivating Place podcast every month, you blow my mind. From Seattle to Austin, Los Molinas, California to London, England, and Orange, New South Wales, Australia, wow, we really do grow together. And we grow better, deeper, wider, louder, and wiser, and gentler. We are the gardeners, regenerative, intersectional, powerful agents of positive change. Thank you for listening. Thank you for donating to support the program, even in these uncertain times. Thank you for sharing the episodes out to your family and friends. We are our own mycelial network of food, of beauty, of utility, and medicine, 
cultural and environmental literacy and community, starting from our own small seeds of this undeniable impulse to garden that we share. It may be me doing most of the talking, people, but you know what? I hear you. I hear you, and I thank you. Now, back to our conversation with Joanna Silver on being informed on the what, the why, and the how of growing this ancient plant ally, Cannabis Sativa and Cannabis Sativa L, also known as hemp. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Joanna Silver has been sharing with us her path to researching and writing about cultivating cannabis in the home garden, which started as a series for the San Francisco Chronicle after the adult recreational use of cannabis was legalized in California in 2016. As we come back, Joanna is describing how this project turned from one of bemusement for her to one of deep human connection. Welcome back. I think I owe so much to the person who I really consider to be, there were several, but to be like my main mentor on cultivation. Um, And that's Nat Pennington of Humboldt Seed Company in Humboldt. And I can't remember how I found them. I mean, genetics, you know, finding seeds that will come true is not a guarantee in the weed world. And I don't honestly know how I navigated to them, but, um, I reached out and got a call back from Nat pretty instantly. And this is someone who, um, works in, works as a marine as a fish biologist he Mm -hmm. studies the genetics of salmon and his work um proved that there's a distinct species of salmon that does a certain run in the Klamath river and it's what is um won the approval of the largest dam removal project in california that will be starting soon and he has always also bred cannabis on the side. And he talked to me about being in meetings with Governor Jerry Brown and then on the side, you know, being this like clandestine weed breeder. And when things went legal, he was just like, screw it. I'm, this is my passion. And he is, so this, like, the thing is, there's all this misinformation about the plant, but then you find these real knowledgeable you know, growers, farmers, breeders, and they, it was like coming home, you know, it was like speak, it was speaking the same language. And, um, I think he, he held my hand through it and he really got my no fuss approach. So when I would come to him, like, I heard this, I heard this, I heard that. And, just so without ego be like, no, you know, like, no, exactly what you're thinking is fine. Like it, it was just really, really reassuring. And, um, I think that, 
So, so having like good people really helped. Mm -hmm. And then I think the plant itself, um, I'm trying to think, you know, as soon as it's, it sprouts after the cotyledons, you get the first true leaves and Mm -hmm. they're these like totally iconic weed leaves. And it does not matter if you're a stoner or not. Like those iconic weed leaves are thrilling to see in your own garden. (laughs) You're just like, Oh damn. You know, I felt like a (laughs) badass. And so I think that was pretty quick where I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh, this is really cool. And then they grow really fast, which is just fun. And, um, they smell like weed from the start. And then the, the, and then it just kind of gets crazier and crazier once they start flowering, you know, the flowers don't look like any flowers on any of my other flowers. And I think also what it is like, I've been in this garden space for so long and those of us in it are passionate about it, Mm -hmm. but we, I mean, I say this now in coronavirus. I was, I was going to say we're not really on trend. We're sort of like the nerdy gardener crew. Mm-hmm. Although suddenly, mm-hmm. look, everybody wants to garden. But at the time, yeah. I've lived in the Bay Area. The tech boom has passed me by. I'm not really in any cultural zeitgeist. And suddenly, like, I'm in this weed world and people are talking about it. And, you know, it was all just thrilling to be, like, on topic and growing this big plant that smelled amazing and sifting through misinformation. It felt like um, like a wild west of cultivation. Like you're growing something that not everyone has grown. You know, the history of this plant is just, it's global and it's deep and I don't want to get it wrong. 100%. Let's go back a little bit to some of the language. And I would like you to demystify for us a couple of things. Um, The first one being some of the primary uh, vocabulary words that, uh, can you translate for those, those for us, Joanna? Sure. So we're talking about like strain versus cultivar? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know how it happened, um, but people call them strains and we don't really use that in the plant world. It might be used in like, you know, certain generations of breeding, but you have to get pretty obscure to find the word strain used in the plant world. We use strain to talk about the flu or bacteria um, in the plant world where we use cultivar, or if you're like me, you misuse variety. Um, Right. So like they're cultivars, right? They're, they're, they have the human hand in them. They've been bred by humans for desirable characteristics. That's a cultivar. Yep. Okay. And uh, there were a couple of other words that you demystified in the introduction. Um, Clones. Yes. Clones. No, it's a vegetative cutting. It's a cutting, you know, it's just different words, just silly. Yeah. And so do most people grow from clones, from vegetative cuttings, or do they grow from seed? And, and it's the seed coming true. That's the worry, right? Is So I can't speak to most. Okay. I think that most um, commercial cultivators indoors are growing from clone. Okay. Actually, and I think a lot of farmers also grow grow from veg- clone vegetative cutting that they've made themselves of their own, you know, estate cultivars. Okay. Um, and then I think much like in the, in the garden world, you, you 
are either like more of a seed person or more of a seedling person, I think a lot of beginners reach for clones thinking that they're saving themselves this big, scary step of starting from seed. But as we know, as any of us who start seeds know, starting from seed is the best and is a magical activity in and of itself and gets you a really strong plant. And And cuttings aren't, you know, seedlings. They're mature plants and they can be somewhat finicky in the cannabis world. And yes, there is some, there is like less assurance that your seed is going to come true in the cannabis world just because breeding has been less than perfect with less than diligent record keeping. And that's why finding um, a company with reputable seeds is important. And you did both. I did both. I did both. I started some, I grew some from clones and I um, grew the rest from seed and like last year and this year, all seed. Remind listeners and me and you why did you do this? So I grow it because I get paid to write about it. No, I grow it because um, I think it's a really stunning plant and I actually can't wait for it to be federally legal because I think that's when um, breeders will really hop on it and bring it up to standard in terms of, you know, um, mm-hmm. like disease resistance, et cetera, and breeding for characteristics other than like super high THC, which I couldn't care less about. So for example, like I am growing two cultivars this year that have really unique leaves. One, one, they just straight up don't look like cannabis leaves. Um, it's called freak show. And then the other I'm growing is called sweet Annie. And it is, um, it's interesting because it's a one-to-one THC to CBD. So it's, if CBD is your thing, that's, that's interesting. But it's when I saw in person up at a farm, it is, it's got this like super lacy leaf and is just gorgeous the way they sort of cascade off of each other. Mm. And, you know, I grow vegetables to eat them, but come on, I worked at Sunset for 10 years. Like I like my veggie gardens to be pretty. And this is a really nice backdrop to a vegetable garden. So I grow it almost exclusively for aesthetic reasons and fun. And with my product, I like, with my finished harvest, I like give it away and like to impress people um, (laughs) and maybe make some tinctures, stuff like that. Other people grow it because they use it. They like really use it to manage some sort of condition, um, big scary conditions or yeah. less scary ones. I know people who grow it because they know someone with one of those conditions, and you know, you know, there's there's like so many different reasons to grow it. More and more now, I know of people who are growing one to two plants, and they are you know, making uh, a tea or a, a, you know, an edible for pain management, as you say, for headaches, for neck pain, for whatever it is. Describe, if you can, in the simplest terms, the difference between the CBD and the THC and what the normal ratio is and, and why that's important. Okay. So first of all, I need to say there's, there's very limited research on CBD and it's it's definitely having a moment as like a cure-all. Mm. And we actually have much more research about THC than CBD. So is CBD a cure-all? I don't know. Um, I, 
I asked a uh, UCLA doctor studying it, like, I'm going to be asked this question a lot. What do I say? And he said, you tell people we have no idea. Um, is, it a, is it an immune modulator? In mice, is it in humans? Maybe. At what dose? you know, administered how many times? So I have to say there's a lot we don't know about CBD. It is um, being touted partly because it has, you know, no psychoactive effects, if anything, like a slight calming. So that's like a lot of people are more interested in CBD versus THC. THC is the one that gets you high. Gotcha. Um, medicinal and, and in the pre Pro, in the prohibition world, people grew this plant to get stoned. And so my favorite metaphor um, is from someone I interviewed for the book who described it like prohibition for alcohol. During those times, people made moonshine and they got drunk. Now in a post-prohibition, you want your glass of Pinot Grigio in the sun's, in the sunshine. So, you know, now that it's no longer just being bred by people trying to blow out the THC levels at ungodly levels, people can breed looking for all these other, you know, medicinal or even aesthetic effects. Yeah. The ratio in each plant uh, or each cultivar is different between these two elements. And um, you can get very high THC. C. Yes. THC yeah. and very, or, or higher CBD, or you can have a balance. Am I right when I right. say that? Yeah. Okay. Yes, you are right. And actually, so actually, um, let's see if I can wade through this without getting too confusing or confused. So um, plants... So we use the word hemp, and historically hemp wasn't really about cannabinoid. It wasn't really about being a high CBD thing. Historically, hemp referred to cannabis plants that were bred for their fibers, which is another you know historical use of the plant. Now, hemp is being used in a bit of this like it's being reapplied and used to describe cannabis plants that aren't necessarily bred for fiber, but that have low THC and higher CBD. So like less than 0.3% by weight THC, it's considered hemp. So now you're seeing things called hemp, but it's really trying to be like a selling point for the CBD, not that it's a fiber plant. I got you. Okay. So, so walk us through like the first plants you grew. First of all, I the first year I didn't, um, so you can't tell the sex of the plants until at earliest six to eight weeks of growing them. Mm-hmm. Um, when you can sort of sex them from their pre-flower and I didn't want to wait cause I didn't have the planting space. So I, I sexed them. God, I just love like saying that, um, <gasps> with, through these like kits that I got from a lab called Phylos, where I mashed the cotyledon leaf um, into like some paper and then mailed it because cotyledon leaves are the only part of the plant that has no THC. So it's not, it's not illegal to mail them. Mm -hmm. And then through DNA testing, got back which plants were males and females. Um, So that was really interesting. And I, you know, got, I thought I got rid of all the males. i I learned later that I didn't either because of I'm sort of famous for mislabeling plants. So I'm not blaming the lab. I'm very, it's very possible that it was my, um, my problem. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, things went pretty swimmingly. Wait, I'm going to stop you. Remind people why you have to sex the plants and why you want to control for just the females. 
So um, it has become fashionable to only to have a harvest that has no seeds in it. Um, I got through high school on, you know, smoking weed with seeds in it and it did the job. So it's not like it's going to ruin your harvest, but it it's no longer a good look to have seeds in your weed. Okay, so in good. order in order to do that, you need the females to remain unpollinated. So you you have to start the seeds and you can get feminized seeds. So seeds that are supposed to only be feminine okay. that have been handled, done, you know, through some treatments from breeders. But where's the fun in that? So you tell what you ultimately tell the sex from the flower and it's, um, hilarious because the males have these little balls, their flowers start like two little balls. Um, and the females have these like hairy strings coming out of them. And all of that went great. I mean, growing this plant is easy. It's not super water intensive. It's not fussy. Like, frankly, the whole thing was going swimmingly until I got super spooked about harvest and people just, the farmers telling me it was going to stink up my whole neighborhood and just describing this precise art of drying and curing that made the whole thing sound like it made me think about like regret. I regretted the whole thing. Like what have I gotten myself into? Um, and that also proved to be no big deal. Okay. Like you, you, you find a few ways to tell whether or not it's ripe and, um, mostly you just kind of squeeze it. You like squeeze the nugget, which is, you know, you squeeze the flower and if it is firm, it's ready. And so it's still in its flowering stage when you harvest it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's in its flowering stage. It's like an advanced flowering stage when you harvest it and, um, you hang it to dry and there's, oh my God, there's so much technical crap written about how to dry it and cure it properly. But you basically want a dark space with some airflow and you don't want it to be, you know, you want it to be like in the 60s or low 70s and you don't want too much or too little humidity and there's ranges that are all over the map and it's really not that big of a deal. And then you put it in some jars and you open the jars the first few days to give it some more air and it's done. So basically like, it's like, it. it's like, it's like harvesting your, your normal herbs. Yes. You're drying an herb. <laughs> herb with a capital H. Yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Gardener and writer Joanna Silver is with us today sharing more about her newest book, Growing Weed in the Garden. From the beginning of its prohibition in the 1920s to becoming fully illegal in the 1970s Controlled Substances Act, to its recent legalization in varying degrees in 33 states, cannabis can be very confusing. Joanna helps us to demystify this storied plant. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, really, 
I have had people say to me forever, well, at least as long as California's landmark legalization of pot in 2016, you should do an episode on GROW. And I was nothing less than dismissive. I was, you know, no way, way too fringe for me and my audience. And here I am doing it. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if there is one thing I know, it's this. It's that in the garden, as in life, to quote the beautiful Annie Redbird, it is those uncomfortable territories in our own minds or lives that are masked by prejudice, which are calling out to us, asking us to wonder more about them. Why? Why do I have such a bias against this one ancient and medicinal plant? And who benefits from that? Or who is harmed by my harboring an uninterrogated blanket rejection of any one plant, especially one as ancient and potentially healing, ritually rich and useful as this plant? Because cannabis itself has done nothing wrong. In fact, it's done plenty right. And there are so many other psychoactive plants that we blithely cultivate in our gardens without much fanfare, let alone confusing legislation. Poppies, salvias, skullcaps, cacti, agave, more. So many more. But this plant is shrouded in angst and misinformation. And so when Joanna Silver started documenting on Instagram her journey in researching and trialing cannabis, I paid attention to my own reaction and my own misunderstanding and lack of solid information. And I was in, because if one of the things we're trying to address as gardeners in this world is the plant blindness of the many, then unfounded plant blindfolds over our own eyes has no place here, no place. So now back to the light shining, growing and writing and good humor of Joanna Silver. To garden is to make a better life by the sweat and creativity of our own hands. This week on Cultivating Place, maker and writer Melanie Falick joins us to discuss the empowerment behind the handmade work of our lives, in making our lives. Hard to say when this truth has ever been more apparent to so many of us. Listen in. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. And we're back with Joanna Silver, author most recently of Growing Weed in the Garden. According to a recent report on NPR, 33 U.S. states currently allow for some form of sale and consumption of marijuana, and more than 20 of those states have designated the cannabis industry as essential during the coronavirus outbreak. As we come back, Joanna describes her initial cultivation methods. Welcome back. I started them in four-inch containers, and I bought some um, little, you know, $40 plastic and metal greenhouse from Amazon, like, you know, just that goes up to my waist, just to give them like a little bit of warmth and protection, like a security blanket. Um, and they did great out there. And I started them probably in like mid March and, um, generally speaking, you can follow the farmer almanacs, um, 
re, uh, tomato guide, like to, when to start your tomato seeds, you can apply that to cannabis. There's yeah. a few huge caveats on that, but, um, but essentially it's a warm season crop. Essentially it's a warm season annual. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so then they grow in the garden. They took up a lot of space. So how much space did you need to uh, allot for a given plant? So I allotted around five to six feet because I didn't want to um, muck it up with um, not enough airflow because I really mm-hmm. think that's where so many people just get into trouble in general. Um, I And that was plenty. So I think... So some people grow really big weed and it looks like a tree. And yes, it's actually been grown in one season. And some of that absolutely has to do with the cultivar. Um, I didn't have any of those. And I, I, I honestly think those are harder to come by. So like, I don't want any of your listeners to, to worry that they're going to have um, a weed tree. A lot of that is also this like nonsense fertilization that people do of their plants organic or Mm -hmm. not but just like feeding them to all get out and I'm not interested in that on any level um Mm -hmm. I'm far too lazy of a gardener to want to do that um I don't want to get out a ladder to harvest I don't think that well-fed plants necessarily taste the best um Mm -hmm. I'm just like not interested so five to six feet per plant was fine Okay, good. And, um, and then about how long did you take to, uh, get to harvest? Harvest happened that year in October, which I learned the cannabis folks call croptober. Mm, Um, last year, everyone's were early and we were all harvesting in September. Um, who knows this year? Talk about how you structured the book, uh, just sort of basically, because as you noted, um, and as you have described in your, uh, now garden relationship with Nat, that you, like, there were really interesting human stories involved here. Describe how you structured the book to get across a sense of not just the garden cultivation, but the cultural relevance of this topic and this crop. Absolutely. So in addition to the entire um, growing section and harvesting section and using section, which, you know, is mostly how to, um, I do show how to roll a joint, but you know, how to use it, um, how to make a tincture, how to make a salve. Um, And in addition to all of that, like nitty gritty grow stuff, I have some chapters in the beginning. Um, I have a chapter about the plant's history because I do think mm-hmm. it's really important to put it into perspective that it is, according to some, the oldest plant under human cultivation. Mm-hmm. I think that's mind blowing and important to keep in mind. And then I have a chapter about grower profiles where I tell various people's stories and show off their gardens. And I did that because I wanted to show that there are so many ways to grow this plant and so many reasons why. And Mm -hmm. it is that part of the book that really transformed the, the, my relationship to the plant and made the project go from like, ha ha, it's hilarious to like, oh my God, Johnny learned how to grow this plant from his mom when she moved him to humble because she wanted a different life for him. And this was the only way to 
make money. And then Johnny served 10 years in prison. It sort of added a different level of depth to the book or mm-hmm. two other growers up there and these, this couple of these farmers who are pushing regenerative farming. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like permaculture beyond. It is soil building. I can't even do justice to describe the stewardship. I was so in awe. You know, they're completely off the grid, um, beautiful property, growing food and medicine. I don't just mean weed as medicine for them and their family. And I was just really, you know, I wanted to get their stories right and various urban growers and then various growers all across the country who've grown in really different conditions, you know, be it super humid summers or bone dry. And really this plant, this plant has gone everywhere in the world. It grows everywhere in the world, um, except maybe Antarctica. So yeah, I just think that's another important thing to show people and remind people that this is more than just like the plant that we've known it to be in the 20th century in America. Right. Or that we think we've known it to be. Right. Right. When you think back over this period of time, it's been, you know, almost three years now since you started on this adventure and research. And, you know, you have a very clearly stated mission in the book of shining a light on to this the cultivation of this plant that's been held in the dark for a good long time in our lifetimes now. What what have been some of the biggest surprises for you, Joanna? During the whole time of the project and when it was wrapping up and I was getting it into the, you know, certain hands to make sure my cultivation information was correct, I was always so concerned about what the cannabis community would think of it. Am I getting it right? Um, You know, that side of things. Mm -hmm. My great joy and surprise has been seeing the reception from the mainstream gardeners. Um, And I guess I just didn't, I didn't think about that. I mean, I just approached it as me, the gardener, and I didn't, anticipate how it would feel so good to be understood by where the world that I come from Mm -hmm. and to have people like you or, you know, the American gardener review it and get it and see that I'm, that it's just a plant and that we can talk about it. Look, Jennifer, we haven't once mentioned like what such and such cultivar does to you, you know, that there's this whole other (laughs) conversation we can be having about the plant. It's made it all kind of come full circle by the mainstream normal gardeners. And I feel really excited and I feel really excited for them to grow it. Um, It's a wild plant to include in your garden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I will say that the photography by Rachel is really beautiful. And and you promised that in the introduction that, um, you know, that not only did you and she have fun, but that you hope readers and viewers will have fun uh, in the book, learning about how to grow it and, and how beautiful it can be. And the, the photography does great justice to this idea. Rachel's incredible. We worked together for a long time at Sunset and she, you know, it was, it was her and I, um, we didn't have creative directors and prop stylists, but for one shoot and it was us and it was, um, it was, it, it was so much fun. Barring astronomical book sales, what are your greatest joys 
about this book and how, how how do you measure success? I mean, I think you've sort of just said that, but is there anything else you'd like to add about about that aspect of or way of looking at it? What a nice question. I think this was like a lot more personal of a book for me than Ruth's book. Um, you know, this really feels like my book. I'm feeling that also received in the ways that people are reaching out to me, connecting um, during this time about our gardens and gardening. And I mean, I think just like any type of human connection right now feels really successful. You know, I, I mailed someone cannabis seeds and she mailed me honey from her bees. And, you know, I mailed someone seeds because he's a first line oh. worker, frontline worker. And I think that like gardening is just a really juicy place for a lot of us to be inhabiting right now. And frankly, it's, it's a great time to have a new book in the space. If you can get the word out about it, it's a really fun time to be a point person for people. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people where they can find the book, Joanna. So in, in non-pandemic times, the answer is everywhere books are sold. Um, under pandemic times, it's if you want to support your local bookseller, obviously see if they're open and shipping and have it. And otherwise, right now, it's, it's available through all um, online retailers from Amazon to IndieBound. I have mm -hmm. a link to them on my website, joannasilver.com. And um, that's where they can find the book. And if they want to follow along with my adventures gardening with my son, um, that's all on Instagram. And my handle's Jojo Silver. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Joanna? No, I'm just, it's really nice to have another conversation with you, Jennifer, in a totally different context. And um, no. In so many ways, we're so lucky doing what we do and having the passions we have. Oh, God, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And even having a tiny bit of land or a tiny bit of sunlight to cultivate plants in the soil is just among the world's greatest privileges right now. And um, I really enjoyed how this book gave you the kind of um, rain to show your intellect and your compassion and your great sense of humor and help to demystify and open our eyes to yet another plant we can enjoy in our gardens. I really appreciate you being a guest on the program today, especially during nap time for the young intern. And I, um, yeah, thank you for being with me. My great pleasure. Joanna Silver is a gardener, writer, and editor, formerly the garden editor at Sunset Magazine. She is a regular contributor to Martha Stewart Living, Better Homes and Gardens, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She is the author of The Bold Dry Garden, on the garden and legacy of famed California plantswoman Ruth Bancroft. This week, Joanna joined us to talk more about her newest book, Growing Weed in the Garden, a no-fuss seed-to-stash guide to outdoor cannabis cultivation, which is available now from Abrams Press. 
Join us again next week when author and maker Melanie Falick joins us to discuss the empowerment behind the handmade in our lives. And of course, to make a garden is to grow a better life by the sweat and creativity of our own hands in partnership with the land. Together, we grow more informed. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, make sure to check out this week's episode notes, which include some maps and resources on the state of cannabis legalization across the U.S., as well as to enjoy Rachel Wheel's beautiful photographs from Growing Weed in the Garden. Written, our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.